two things, where's the money and how to sell it. So through all of my businesses, I've always been able to, you know, historically find out, okay, where the opportunities are in that business. And there are many opportunities. Listen, too many of us spend most of our waking hours working hard for our money and have little time left to figure out how to make our money work hard for us. We default to handing our savings off to advisors who make their livings off our assets while we wait until 65 to enjoy any of the benefits. The problem is we need a quick way to gain the knowledge to take back the reins on managing our money while avoiding the misleading media or just straight bad advice. My goal is to give you all my knowledge, full-time research, and connections in a distilled version so we all can make our money work harder for us. This show focuses on ways you can take back control and intelligently invest outside the stock market to benefit your life today as well as in retirement. I'm Brian O'Neill, and welcome to the Harder Working Money Podcast. Hey folks, welcome back to the Harder Working Money Podcast. It's an awesome day today, and we have a guy that I've been wanting to interview since I met him. He's a very cool dude, Paul Montalongo. When I first met him, I thought I need to get to know him more because he just he has a feeling about him that I feel like he's the real, genuine, honest, truthful, no BS kind of guy. And I'm super happy to have him on the podcast. So welcome, Paul. Oh, thank you. That's a nice introduction. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, no problem. No problem. Try so not to disappoint. the reason I'm so enamored by you or attracted to your backstory is because you have a business background. You, you were a successful business person that had multiple businesses, and then you transitioned to real estate. And that relates to me because that's sort of where I'm at as well. I spent 15 years being an entrepreneur, had three businesses, and now I'm looking to transition to real estate. So I seek out people like you to see how you did it and what attracted you to it and was it scary when you first started out? So I guess a little backstory for the listeners of just how you went from being a business to making the dive into real estate full time. Yes, I have a long business history. I started my first business when I was 27 years old. It was a remodeling general contracting a home build a design build firm here in San Antonio, Texas, where I now live. I had worked for my father in his family, in the family business from the age of, uh, from graduation of high school till about 27. And then uh, the situation found me, I needed to be on my own. So I made the decision to jump off and be on my own. And and I, I wouldn't say that I had the plan in my life to go out and be an entrepreneur and own my own businesses. It was a set of circumstances that drove me to that. And the first few years, obviously, like I think most businesses and most entrepreneurs, it was tough. It was very, very tough. And so because I had a family, I had a young family at the time. So this led me into uh, custom remodeling. That then led me into um, a set of circumstances where I had clients now that were major insurance companies. And so I opened up a insurance restoration company. So if your house flooded or burned, or if your business flooded or burned, then it was my company that did the repairs. And I obtained those contracts through relationships with insurance companies. That's easier to sell as well, because you don't have to constantly be hunting for work. You lock in some contracts with that, insurance that's, companies that's and keep true. you happy, and you have an easier flow. Yeah. But I think back on it, like, how did I really get started? And the way I got started was a family friend had a house fire, he asked me to fix the house, so I did. 
And as I worked through the insurance company, I found that there was an opportunity there. So I bought a police scanner radio, and I put it on my desk. And no uh, I listened to the police scanner, and I was an ambulance chaser. In this case, I was a <laughs> fire truck chaser. And so I would hear a, I would hear about a fire through the police scanner, and um, I had a trailer with a bunch of materials on it too. What they do, uh, what's called secure the project. So you, you know, you, you secure it uh, uh, once it burns or floods or whatever. And so for the first uh, probably year, I just chased, <laughs> I chased uh, fire trucks. So what That's that awesome. did was it gave me an opportunity to be first on site. And so yeah. I would build a rapport with the homeowner, the policy owner. And of course, I did a good service for the insurance company. I did a good service for the homeowner and securing their property. So that gave me a natural foot into the repairs and the, you know the renovations that came along with that. Eventually, I got rid of the police scanner because then I developed the relationships. Once I learned who to go talk to, I developed yeah. the relationships with the insurance companies. So you know, I did that. I, I did custom building. I have a long track record, a long history of custom building and projects and development and that sort of thing, uh, mostly residential, some commercial. Then that led me into another business where um, I was invited to do speaking and training for home builders and for construction companies and anyone related to the construction industry, insurance companies, uh, electricians, uh, uh, trades associations, real estate companies, those, those kinds of. And so I did, I spent 10 years on the professional speaking circuit where I did keynote speeches. I did um, uh, sales training, marketing training, business development training. I wrote uh, training manuals for the National Association of Home Builders. And to my knowledge, they still use those uh, wow. training manuals. Yep. But all along the way, I, I would do real estate. I would flip a house. I'd buy a house. I would renovate it. I would uh, rent it. Or I would you know, buy a piece of land and turn it. So I bought a piece of raw land. I was going to build a house. I was going to sell that house. But two years later, I had not done anything with it. So I put it up for sale. I remember I bought it for $7,500. I sold it two years later for $15,000. So I doubled my money. Nice. And I did the thing that any 19-year-old boy should do with their money. I bought a truck and a motorcycle. (laughs) (laughs) Did not reinvest. But of course, a couple of years later, I bought a house and more real estate and the house across the street needed to be flipped. And so I bought it and so on and so forth. So how did you finance those things in the beginning, like buying the house next door and things like that? Were you in a position where you could, or did you have to get creative to start out? So when you have, when you have a construction company, obviously you have the personnel. And then at the time I had the cash flow. So okay. I, you know, I, I had the cash flow to, to be able to do that. Now, the entry point back then for a single family residence is not anywhere near the entry point now financially for that. So, um, and there was a lender, I had a lender that would, you know, participate in those kinds of things. Uh, but those were real simple transactions. You just, I, I also did homer, um, owner financing. So if I could find an owner that would, uh, f- you know, float the loan for a while, that was great. So that's the way I did that. And then in 2008, I moved away from Texas, or sure, rather 2009, I moved away from Texas and I moved to Las Vegas and I opened up a real estate um, training call center phone room. And so we did uh, real estate training and mentoring for for people all across the country. What, what, what drove you to do that? Just curious. A business opportunity. Just opportunity and sounded good? It sounded great. So I I got divorced in 2000 and 2006. I got divorced from a long marriage. 
And so I was kind of... Move to Vegas, yeah. <laughs> I was kind of, you know, yeah. just kind of wandering through life, you know. The 2008 economic situation hit. I was trying to figure out, you know, a lot of things. Uh, I mean, in life, if you if, if we want to go down that road, we can. I was I was at a place in my in my life where I needed to figure some things out, and so um, there was an opportunity. Two things to to have a call center in Las Vegas and to do real estate on the West Coast because at that time the West Coast real estate was in a lot of trouble. And so you could find mm-hmm. deals, you could find foreclosures, you could find pre-foreclosures. So Las Vegas seemed like a nice place to live and be able to still do West Coast investing. So I did that. And along the way there, you know, I figured some things out in my life. And uh, then I sold out of that, moved on. And uh, I then bought a marina and RV park in 2015. So... Uh, the way that story happens is someone just literally called me and they said, do you want to buy a marina? And I said, no. How do you assess the value of a, of a, of a marina? Is, does it have rent? Like it, they lease it just like a... So here's the evolution of that. I, first of all, I said, no, I, I've never owned, I never had owned a boat before. I still have never owned a boat. But one day I woke up and I had 115 boats. There were 115 boat slips. So in my mind, I reasoned this. I reasoned that um, each unit represented a check coming in. And so that was 115 checks. And then there were 23 or 24 RV spaces, and I got rid of all those, and I put in 38 tiny homes. I had 38 tiny homes built. And so there was another 38 checks. This particular place happened to be a membership club, so there's another 400 checks and then it was also an events center. So there was another check every three, you know, three times a, a month or so. And so it had all these multiple streams of rep. There was a warehouse that had uh, storage space in it. So there was another 10 or 11 checks. So you could see that right away in my, this, the way I reasoned on it was, okay, there's about 185 checks coming into my box each month. So that particular property at its height had 13 streams of revenue wow. uh, fr- from from different those different aspects. Was it on a lake or on the ocean? It was on the lake. It was on Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. And so, but that was my first exposure to what you and I know now as syndication. So although I did not know how to buy the, uh, a marina, that at the time, let's see, I paid $2.6 million for it. I believe that was the number, 2.57 or 2.6 right in there. And it needed some rehab. I I didn't. I had no idea how to buy this. The reason yeah. I was invited was that I had business acumen. I had a track record in business. I had some net worth and I had some cash. So they, you know, I, it seemed like I, I was being asked to help support the loan. Then we find out that the lender required that one of the owners, or that the owner, live in North Carolina. So I'd been living in in Vegas. I was single. It was, yeah. it was totally, totally a good You're match. You're the guy. <laughs> I'm the guy. So I went over there and I lived in North Carolina for a couple of years, stabilized the property. But back to the syndication part. So I had no idea about syndication or how you go collect. In this, cha- in this case, we needed a, a $1.4 million in for, for a CapEx and to close, et cetera. I had no clue. But one of the partners there, had a clue and he knew exactly what to do. So he raised $1.4 million in nine days. 
And I'm like, how in the heck did you do that? So I got mentored. I got taught uh, firsthand. And so then he and I did another deal and we've, and then he brought in a friend and that friend and I have done four deals, maybe five. And so, you know, now, now it just kind of, kind of continues all this from my business experience in that to my best count, I think I've hired and employed over a thousand people in my career. And so I knew the management side. I knew the project management side. I certainly knew the construction side. I knew how to move, move people and projects and places and parts and pieces around for, to make a business work. Yeah. And there's a lot of, it's a business and I was, a business. you know, a good, a good two thirds of business are, it's very similar. <laughs> like the parts and pieces are very similar, different avenues and different, different Absolutely. looks of those pieces, but it's still a business. It doesn't matter. It still is. You know, there's money coming in and money going out and there's management in between. And there's, and there's people that have to pull it off. It's interesting you say that though, because you know, we're you and I, and probably many people that are listening to this podcast, we're in the apartment buying business. So we buy multifamily apartments, but I don't really look at it that way. And I've never looked at it that way. I look at it as I'm buying a business. Oh, by the way, the ground and the buildings are the asset that is attached to that business. But I'm buying your marketing. I'm buying your people. I'm buying your customers. I'm buying your invoicing. I'm buying your debt. I'm buying your vendors. Yeah. I'm buying everything there is that you took to develop that business that you call an apartment complex. So now when I buy your business, I'm going to go in and convert your business or change it around to a business that I want to a business that I want to run, to a business that that I want to eventually sell or keep. I have the options. So to me, it is a, I'm buying, I'm in the er, uh, mergers and acquisitions business. So I'm acquiring your business, all the good things that come along with it and all the not so good things that come along with it. And so, uh, you know, I don't know if we're going to get into any advice here, but if anybody is listening to this and they want some advice, I would advise you to view it as a business transaction. You're buying someone's, uh, you're buying someone's baby. And even myself, being the business background, I have to get my head around not thinking of it like single family. First of all, even a single family rental, it's still mostly valued based on what the neighbor's house is worth and comps. This is valued just like a business. I just sold several businesses and I'm looking at how we assess apartment complexes. And it's like, I sold restaurants recently and they assessed how much my, you know, flat tops and fryers and tables and what the name was worth and what the revenue is and what the profit margins were. They didn't really care what my tables were like. They wanted the condition, condition of them, but that, that wasn't what they were buying. They were buying the income stream and the profit and the assets just came along with it and that's what allowed it to produce that income. And apartments, you really have to get your head around like because they're so expensive. The buildings, there's so much you know structure there. You think that the value would be attached to like how much is that physical building worth mm -hmm. when it's really how much right. does it produce. And obviously, you know, we have cap rates that people have heard about in the show that the quality of, you know, how old that building is, what, you know, how much life it has left on it will change how much you pay. Just like a business will be, if it's a franchise, it's less likely to fail, it'll be valued higher. If it's a single mom and pop, you'd be valued lower. There's, sure. Every business has a way of ramping it up and down on its quality, I guess you would say. I, I sort of see cap rates a little bit as like the quality, or the, the classes, excuse me, the classes of assets. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And, and, then, and then when I learned that 
Remember when I told you about the marina, multiple checks? Yeah. And then when I learned that you can make you can have multiple streams of revenue coming in on an apartment complex, well, that that sounded really good to me because um, in all the business that I'd have had in the past, think think about this. I was operating a construction business, a remodeling business, and a insurance restoration business, and a speaking training business all at the same time. Okay, so why did you burn out? Um, yeah, I did. I did. That's a good question. I have not been asked that on a podcast. Thank you. That's what happened to me recently. I hit 40 years <laughs> yeah. old. I didn't have, a, didn't have a midlife crisis. I had a midlife rebalancing is what I'm calling it. And I was just like, I started all this stuff and did all this stuff when I was single, had no kids, and I right. just liked the work. And then I got right. older and more tired and just, yeah, I had different priorities. So, so. so your priorities change, I, I believe. Your yeah. priorities change. Uh, for men, it's my opinion. And you get smarter, too. You get smarter. It's my opinion that in our forties we have a reevaluation, and we start. Now we can start thinking about our experience and our wisdom. Okay, how do we how do we apply that to what we're doing? And um, that's how that's how you overcome the overwhelm or the burnout, because the burnout comes from an expectation of yourself that is not sustainable. No. So you no. change the expectation. Instead of working hard, you're going to work smart. So instead of instead of trying to do everything yourself, now you're going to work on your relationships with other people so that you can engage them in the process. And those are just some of the the things that, that you learn with experience. Yep. Yeah, experience. Like I didn't have mentors. I was just at it alone, basically. And I learned from my iterations, my first company. I mean, it probably took me six years to figure out how I was actually supposed to be doing things in order to get clients, close them, mm -hmm. who to trust, mm -hmm. who not to trust for marketing and all these other aspects. Mm -hmm. Then the second iteration got a little better, but it was in a different industry. So I tried to trust some people, but then you learn, okay, who can I hand things off to and who can I? By the third one, it was much easier, like much easier. Because I could take the last mm -hmm. few iterations and go, I know exactly what I need to do and what I don't need to do. And it was probably the closest business I got to being an owner versus an operator. Mm -hmm. um, I made, you know, one miscalculation I would say is I, I didn't, I, I found an operator for me and I didn't lock him down the way I could have, I guess you would say. I ended up mm -hmm. selling the business to him. And I think mm -hmm. that looking back, I probably would have partnered with him. I think he would have mm -hmm. been happy with that. But Next business, now I know. So got to just keep going. <laughs> yeah, I think I go back to a point I made earlier. Like I, I didn't, you know, I, I didn't wake up as a teenager and have this, this drive and determination to be an entrepreneur. I do remember, and I didn't go to college, okay? So I, I do remember going to one semester of the local community college, and I was taking architecture because I like, you know, design and that sort yeah. of thing. And I don't know, we were maybe a month into it, and the professor, the teacher says, once you graduate and once you get your degree in design, engineering, or architecture design, you can make $40,000 a year. Keep that in mind. And I went home that evening, and I said, that's not good enough. So I didn't go back the next day, <laughs> and I never went back. I'm like, 40000 This was in... This was in the early 80s. Like, who the heck wants to work for 40000 a year was my mindset way back then. And that's not bad in the early 80s, isn't it? No, I think that's, no, 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 no. I think that was probably a, a good, good annual wage. I don't regret not going to college. I think it 
again, it put me into an environment where I had to be self-sustaining. Um, but I, that was, that was my one college event. <laughs> I made it through college. I didn't like it. I felt like they were just wasting my time most of the time. Like I wanted it to be harder. I'd tell my professors like, you need to make this twice as hard. It's like, this is boring. And then I graduated and I worked for a great company with a great boss, with a great, you know, leadership path and everything. And I made it one year and I was just like, I just didn't like the nine to five feel. I just, I, I wanted to, to do it on, on my terms. I want to work really hard for three, four days straight, 12 hours a day, and then take a day off. I don't want to have to come in at seven o'clock just to show yeah. my face. You know what, you know what confirmation bias is, right? I confirmation so. bias. All right. So I have a belief and I'm going to go out and search everything that I can yeah. to confirm my belief, my bias. So for a long time, I would do that with education, with higher education. I would say, oh, look, Bill Gates didn't finish. Oh, look, this guy didn't finish. Oh, look, this guy didn't finish. And so that was my own personal uh, confirmation virus. virus, Confirmation bias. Confirmation virus. How do you like that? Confirmation virus. <laughs> bias. Yeah. Awesome. So you get into multifamily, but now you're doing... I saw recently you're building self-storage. So you're not limited just to multifamily. It seems like you, you, you more focus on multiple checks from one asset, basically. Whether it's, is that, is that That's why the you pick self-storage? Or is that the mindset That is the mindset. It? Multiple, okay. multiple streams of revenue. And so a multi-unit property, a multi-unit asset, by definition, gives you multiple checks. So we know that you can do things to improve the value and appreciate the value of the asset, so that you can sell it down the road uh, for uh, for a lot of you know for more money, a whole lot more money than you than you purchased it for. So yes, we are uh, in the middle of developing a self storage unit. Uh, we are about ninety percent finished with all the architectural drawings. We think that we will break dirt uh, sometime this summer. We are approaching the city of San Antonio for permitting here in the next week or so. Um, at this moment, it is r- about 550 units. Uh, and that's a little bit floating because we're trying to maximize the space. And uh, I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by it and excited about it because it's new development. It's, it's, I'm, we're buying dirt. So yeah. Everything from the dirt up has to be managed. Engineering, architecture, the drainage, the permitting. Okay, I had to jump in here real quick. I hope you're loving this interview as much as I am. To get all our content and stay up to date, make sure you follow us on social media under Brian underscore O'Neill underscore Investor on Facebook and Instagram. And also remember to follow this podcast if you're listening to an audio. And if you're on YouTube watching the video, make sure you subscribe to this channel. Okay, back to the interview. How do you assess where self-storage will work when you're doing new build? Like, what are the parameters in the area? Because if it's, if it's existing, you can look at its current trends and neighbors and things like that. How do you assess that you can build a 500-something unit and it's actually needed in the area? Yeah, great question. So originally, we had intended to build apartments on this land. It's 8.67 acres. And then we got the idea that we need to hire someone to do a feasibility study. So we hired a professional to do a feasibility study. They took several months to do a, a couple of months to do a feasibility study. And it kept pointing towards self-storage because there was not enough self-storage in the area. You know, self-storage uh, operators, owners and operators have this whole dimension of, of measurables and, and information that they seek. 
where is your property in comparison to other self-storage, the unit mix, the kinds of unit, air-conditioned, non-air-conditioned. You know, there's a whole list of, of data that they, that they look for. And you use an advisor so, for that? We did. We used a professional feasibility study company. Uh, okay. In fact, we just met with them this morning because uh, we're still tightening it up. So out of that feasibility study, we gathered a couple of critical things. Number one, self-storage is very, very desirable in this area that we have the land. And two, the more units I can get out of that property, the better. And so um, we started off with about 400, about yeah, right at 400, and we're now get, approaching 550 to 600 units is trying to maximize the space because of the demand. So, you know, it's a market study. It's a geographical study. It's a, we're looking at the influence of, of government, uh, the municipal regulations. We do traffic st- studies, traffic flow studies. Um, you study the utilities, what's out there, what are your barriers to entry, so all, all of those things are part of the formula to decide whether or not, or decide what kind of product you put on a piece of dirt you buy. Uh, we're doing it right. We're not doing anything half-ass. We're getting, uh, we have, the, we feel like we have the best engineer in town. We have the best architect in town for this kind of product. We have the best feasibility study company. We have the best builder. We, we're building a class, a first class product. So that we have options, Brian. <laughs> do, do you run it? Oh, no. No, no, no. We'll hire first-class management, property management. We'll hire a first-class um, uh, marketing company to market and promote it. So in these storage facilities, everything will be automated. The human resource need is low. Uh, you have somebody in the office that will basically show you a unit, but everything beyond that your lease, your payments, your entry, your access is all automated, uh, which is the newest and greatest and best thing. Does it sit under a national brand or is it your, it will be Not a brand yet. that's specific to you? Not yet. So okay. again, we have options. So the options here could be we build it, we keep it as a legacy product. Uh, so it's in our family forever. Um, we could refinance it pull out cash. We could refinance it and build a phase two. Uh, we could sell it to a national brand. We could partner with a national brand. We could, I mean, tell me when to stop. We have options. No, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. So, so you built, so you built to a spec that a national brand could acquire or you could keep. That's true. That's true. Got it. Okay. All, all a national brand would need to do is come in and put their logo and their colors. Do national brands right. typically build or they typically acquire from people like you who build them. So what I'm told and the research that I've done uh, indicates that they like a, an asset that is already built with room to build more. So you build your project, you prove the concept that it can get leased out. Then you present your, you know, your lease up plan and successful lease up plan to a national builder. They assume that, and then they buy the property that's, you know, they buy the rest of your property. And so now they can add on because you already have a proven business concept is what I understand at this moment is the optimal way to sell your product to a national brand. Sort of like their own value add version. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So yeah, this, yeah, we're really, we're really pleased with this. And 
this will be my first um, self-storage project. Um, I have built small retail, light retail in the past. Uh, and um, I was even actually an owner in a little, little tiny strip center in the past. But this will be the first big project like this. How do you get investors to become part of it with you as it's your first one? Obviously, you have a track record of success in other types of assets. Is that what you what you rely on, or is there any? So, the investors, the lending, the, you know, the financing. These are all relationship based. These are all people that I have done business with, dealt with, um, and so you know, when I approached them and said, "Okay, we we have this next thing coming," then since there's a element of trust there already. Then it was that's an easier conversation. Uh, will we syndicate it? I don't know. I, I don't know if we will. We we may syndicate some of it. I I, I just don't know that we haven't we haven't got uh, far enough along in our financing uh, and and in our business plan to know what our needs are financially. So I I don't you know to to make it happen. So I don't know what yeah, we're going to do, it. but but I could. <laughs> You know, so you have that on the horizon. Is multifamily on hold? Is multifamily just waiting to pull the trigger here in the next few quarters? What's your what's Paul's current the current news? It seems like it changes every week. I don't think the macroeconomics of of what's going on is changing, but what's your 2023 plan in multifamily? Yeah, I'm still very optimistic about multifamily. So I think over the next 12 to 18 months there will be opportunities. Uh, we have recently submitted five LOIs on pretty nice size apartment complexes. A couple of them we're still negotiating with. Uh, we closed one in December. We closed one in January. Uh, we'll close another one on the 27th of this month. So we're still actively in multifamily. We're still actively buying and pursuing, and I'm still actively making offers. That said, uh, we're much more prudent right now. And we're much more um, uh, we're, we're much more aware of what it takes to actually get the uh, the place under contract and then to perform and close on it. So it's a little different conversation right now with brokers and with sellers than it was say a year and a half ago. The uh, year and a half ago, the conversation was very one sided to the seller side, and the the seller through the broker would basically say, "Here's what we want. You're either in or you're out." There was no negotiating. Now we're seeing a change. There's more of a balance structure. I would not say that it's a buyer's market, but I would say it's more balanced between buyer and seller, as evidenced by the negotiations, the contracts that we are, uh, the LOIs that we are putting in right now. I had a conversation with a brokerage, a, a representative from a maybe the most famous brokerage firm in the country, this morning. And uh, I just told them, you know, they had a certain a group of things they wanted us to to do, and I just said that's not going to happen. And they're like, "Well, this is typical." I'm like, "But we're not in typical times." What What's an example of one of those things? Do you mind sharing? Not at all. Earnest money gone hard the first day. Oh, even I know. So, that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, but a year and a half ago, my most famous story is a year and a half ago, we put a, an offer in on, on, on a deal and the whisper was 14.2 million. And I really wanted this, 
this uh, apartment complex. So I put in an offer of $14.5 million. Well, there were 26 offers on this apartment complex. We came in sixth place, and the winner was $15 million with a million dollars gone hard, non-refundable day one at the, sign, at the signing of PSA. So I just, I, you know, I, I, I couldn't participate in that back then. Um, so now uh, earnest money, uh, non-refundable go- is connected to a series of events, financing included, financing being one of them. Uh, along with the more, the other obvious ones, you know, the engineering and the phase one and t- clear title, those kinds of things that are, that have always been there. But now we just, and I, it, it, and in our agreements, we, we have event driven release of earnest money. So when certain things happen, when certain, when the seller and the buyer perform certain things, then a section of the earnest money could, could, uh, can go, uh, released. So that's one example right there. Um, what do you think is going to happen to those people that beat you on projects like that a year or two ago? Like, do you look back and you're glad that you held your line and didn't go and play at that, at that level? Or did you not know at the time you're just like, well, it's too rich for my blood. I'm out. Like what's, I'm always curious the people that went to that level at the time everyone's doing it everyone's going harder and harder and tweaking numbers and getting crazy weird financing going and then there's certain people that didn't participate and they're looking pretty smart right now um, for some of them at least the last year year and a half i guess you'd say do you have any insight of like how you mentally were okay with okay i'm i know that this is where i'm going to be at i i hope they do well I really do. Yeah. Because it's good for the economy, it's good for our business, it's good for them. I would never wish them to fail. That just doesn't make any sense. That's bad karma. Yeah. But aside from that, it's just my belief. I just like I don't want you to fail at anything. I want you to be successful at everything. And having said that, I've got a set of of parameters that I know I can deal with and I can manage and uh, especially if I'm going to go involve investors. You know, there's a risk assessment there, so that's one of the one of the things I think that is a trick in life is to establish your your boundaries, your parameters, your values, and stick to them, and don't regret that you stuck to them. It's just like, okay, that's who I am. Yes, I'm going to grow. Yes, I'm going to learn. Yes, I'm going to expand. And while I do all of that, there are some things that I just will not compromise on. It's not a hard line. It's not being stubborn. It's just I know where I am. So I don't know what happened to that property. That's just one example, by the way. There were yeah, yeah. bunches of them a year and a half to two years ago. Uh, I don't know where they are on that property, but, I, man, I hope they did. I hope they killed it. I hope they crushed it because it's a sweet property, you know? Yeah, and no one wants to see that happen, especially for you know the investors that are in it. Just trying to look back, you know, someone that sat in 2012, looking back at 2007, trying to analyze how was there a way to know, or how the people that acted a certain way came out of it better, and to put that into your to learn from it. Like for me personally, like what is it that allowed you to go? No, that's that's my line, and someone else wasn't. <laughs> What, what was the thought process? What was the thinking? And how can I learn from that? Because I'll be in that situation someday. And that, 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 that's more where I was going at. So you have just, you've said it and you're comfortable, you're comfortable with your, your, your parameters and you have to be okay with that. And then look forward. Yeah, those parameters come from experience and they come from just thinking about it. And, and they come from 
all right, what, what's your level of tolerance for if things go wrong? So, you know, one of my famous questions that I ask myself and, and others who care, and that is, what's the worst that can happen? So, okay, if you can handle the worst that can happen, then is it really the worst that can happen? But if you can't handle the worst that could happen, now you need to back up a step. So when something like that occurs, I, I you know, I, I will say to myself, okay, what's the worst that can happen? And can I, can I handle that? Am I willing to handle that? Yeah. It's a interesting thing like where we are right now. So we've observed in the past few months that there, that investors are a little timid. Um, and that's understandable. Uh, and there's a psychology out there also that there are people that are going to sit on the sideline and wait till the market either corrects or changes or stabilizes or whatever verbiage they want to use. What's interesting to me was that from 2010 to 2021, 22, there was there were another group of people out there that said, oh, I'm going to wait till the market corrects. So they watched it right all the way up. And they their their psychology was I'm gonna wait till it corrects, I'm gonna wait till it corrects, I'm gonna wait till it corrects. And then there's a group of people now that are like, I'm gonna wait till it corrects, I'm gonna wait till it well, you know, pick pick your path. <laughs> what yeah, what, yeah. what are you really waiting for? You and those that are waiting, that's typically what they do. They wait. They so you know, you can be smart, you can be aware of what's going on in the market, but I've always found that the most the people that make things happen are the people that actually jump in and make a decision, make a smart decision, but they, they do not delay making decisions. Yeah. It's interesting to see within our, the Sumrock group, the people that are, they're closing deals or at least they're attempting to go after some and they're making the numbers work and they're not, the underwriting isn't crazy. I mean, they, they find them and they seem to be able to negotiate with sellers and get, reasonable terms that makes the numbers work and they're they're moving forward and i'm just always curious like they're finding them and there's a whole group of other people that are just like sitting on their hands over in the corner saying oh no we can't do anything right now when they're they're not stretching it that thin it seems like on some of these underwritings that we're seeing um but it also seems like people with a little more experience a little more level level head with their parameters of how they function and they're not they weren't super aggressive to bite things up in 2020, 21. And they're just like slow and steady almost, it seems like. There's always opportunity. It's, they just seem to always pivot and find it without getting aggressive. Yeah, I would say one of my skills in business is two things. Where's the money and how to sell it? So through all of my businesses, I've always been able to, you know, historically find out, okay, where the opportunities are in that business. So let's use our example, multifamily. So where are the, where are the many opportunities to generate revenue to uh, make a property appreciate? And there are many opportunities. And so one of my skills is I can, I'm able to find those, find, you know, find out how to make those happen. And then how, the second skill set is how to sell it. Okay, so how do I sell it? to the market in three or four years or five years? How do I sell it to you as an investor to come along with the, you know, with the, with the ride with me? How do I sell it to a lender? How do I sell it to my partners, etc.? And I don't mean, I don't mean like snake oil salesman <laughs> sell yeah. it. I, I just mean like, how do I present it in such a way that the value is obvious 
the opportunity is obvious, and that you know that it's good for you. So that's been a thing that I've been able to do through the course of my life and my businesses, and I see how it transcends and how it carries over into what we're doing now. That, that's very. That's a very insightful, insightful analysis of kind of how you how you think things is. There really is a different perspective from each one of those parties of what they're going to value and what, and what they'll they'll fear. And yeah. selling, like in my previous business, I just always think about, you know, I did sales a lot of times, but I always consider myself just a consultant. Basically, I would come in and just mm-hmm. listen to people and figure out what has value to them, what doesn't, what's their worry, mm-hmm. how can I address it, and basically paint the picture for them. People mm-hmm. have a hard time painting the picture. You can give them all the nuts and bolts, and they're like, we don't know what this does. You have to show them mm-hmm. what the picture is. And I think that's a better way to say it. It is. How can I paint the picture in a way that is influential? That's a great way of putting it, yeah. How do you nurture that? Nurture that, I don't want to call it a mindset, but that abundance mentality and looking to see what you can control and what options there are out there. Is I know... You try to surround yourself with the right type of people. I've found that incredibly life changing. Just being around different types of people, where it's not like it's not a one off person you kind of talk to talk to, and your brain can automatically go, "Well, that's just, he's the exception." In a room, one hundred fifty, two hundred, five hundred people that are all thinking the same way, it changes things a lot. Um, is there any other way you do that, or do you pick do you pick partners and people you're around in a certain way that match that mindset or that frame of mind? Yes, I would say that that the partners that we have have a similar mindset of a prosperity and b we're going to do whatever the heck it takes to get get it done. So that to me that's real. To me that's super important. Is okay. Can can we all be in a foxhole together? And are we going to have each other's back? That's super important. I, I cannot underestimate that because I've been in foxholes and not had my buddies there in the past. So now I choose to have, you know, if I'm going to be in a foxhole, we're going to be in it together. That's my analogy. Say, so is that just a feeling that you have with people? I mean, it's, it's not, that's not an analytical judgment. You can just go like, oh, I can check the boxes on this person. They're good for being in the foxhole. Like, is that just something you get over years and years of? There's no Excel yeah. spreadsheet for that. <laughs> it's a feeling. It's an intuition. And it's a development of a relationship. So, you know, as I, as I get to know you and as I get to know who you are and, and you get to know me and we talk about shared experiences and where you came from and, and you, you will eventually tell me how you responded to the things that happened to you. Here's some rocket science for you. People will tell you everything you need to know if you'll just listen. So the listening skill set needs to be there. And when the, you know, the words that people use, they are real. And, and so some of it's intuition, I'm sure some of it's just experience and wisdom. And, uh, so that's, that's how I arrive at that. Uh, the other thing is I, I alluded a little bit to this earlier and that is knowing yourself. So after a lot of people say they know themselves and that's cool. I I'm, I'm glad they do. But to really know yourself is to know your strengths and to know your weaknesses, to know the things that you won't tolerate, to know the things that you that will make you crazy, the things that you that you will respond negatively to. You know, I, I think we all have triggers of some sort and there are things that 
that will you know trigger me and that will trigger others and so if if I can do what I can to not put myself in those situations then I have a much better chance of having a, a nice successful relationship and Letitia and I, we, we made a conscious decision a year and a half ago that we weren't going to do business with anybody that we couldn't go out and have a lot of fun with. Because <laughs> I believe that the way, you, the way you do one thing is the way you do everything. So if you work hard, you're going to play hard. You're going to fun hard. You know? You're going to love hard. You're going you know, to protect each other hard. You're gonna, so you know, if, you're, if you're extremely passionate in something, that typically transcends every area of your life. You're going to be passionate. And I appreciate people with passion. I, sometimes I don't agree with people's passion is, but I do appreciate their level of passion. When somebody is truly passionate about something, that to me is an extremely attractive thing. So I guess I'll close with just, as a successful entrepreneur, you have properties. I'm sure you could retire. Why keep going? I'm sure it's just because you enjoy it as well. But with success as an entrepreneur, how do you have contentment in your current situation? Because, you know, I'm out doing this and I have this coming and I have that. And I ask this, this as a completely selfish question because I catch myself, actually my wife catches me sometimes, always thinking about the future and forward and what's next and feeling like I haven't succeeded yet because I haven't completed this new venture and sort of forgetting like all this stuff behind me that is pretty substantial. I'll go through and pick out the things I didn't do well on them. But it actually takes her sometimes to sit down and go, don't forget X, Y, and Z. It's like, oh, yeah. How do you sit back and be content where you're at and not let that the future cloud that? I'm not asking that question well or not. but I understand what you're asking. And by the way, your wife is very wise. <laughs> she is. She's a to, good to, 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 to be able to give you that advice. You know, I told you the story about the marina that came into my life, and that came into my life at a point where I essentially was retired. I was not working. I was uh, I had I had sold out of businesses and two businesses, and so I had uh I was yeah, I was basically not working. I was just piddling here and there. And that came to me as an opportunity for me to to get it re-engaged and use my skills. And it was a new venture. It was a new frontier. So I think the trick is this new frontiers. If you're looking for new frontiers, you will stay engaged and you'll stay passionate and you will not get complacent and a deep sense of gratitude for where you are and a deep sense of gratitude for what took you there. I established a belief several years ago that, Everything that had happened to me in my life up to today has prepared me for whatever happen, is happening today. So all of those businesses and all those people I hired and all those failures and all those successes and all those whatever that happened all those 35 years, they prepared me to go out and buy that first multifamily property. And now that I've done that a bunch of times, that prepares me for whatever is next. And then when I'm done with that, that'll prepare me for whatever's next. So that's a belief that that I established years ago. And the other thing, belief was, I think when I was about, well, I was in my mid-40s, you know, I just realized, okay, this is all a journey. Now, f- fortunately, there are people out there that realize this much earlier, 
but in life. But for me, it was about that age. I'm like, okay, this is all an experiment. This is my life's experiment. And so what am I going to learn from it? What joys am I going to get? And listen, I get as frustrated as the next person when something doesn't happen and doesn't happen properly or doesn't happen on my timeline as that I thought. I get as frustrated as the next person, maybe more so because people like you, we demand a lot of ourselves, right? We, we, we demand a lot. So when we don't see those things happen immediately, we can get as hard upon ourselves as anybody. And at the end of the day, it's it, I, if we can keep that in perspective, and if I can keep that in perspective in terms of, okay, I have a beautiful family, I have a really nice dwelling. Um, I have great friends. Um, and so, you know, those things are in perspective. We can choose to do anything and pretty much go anywhere that we wish. So that's that, that's a real blessing. And to keep that uh, in mind and for, in, in the forefront of our minds is, is, really, is really where I think the trick is. That's amazing. I don't think I could say that in a hundred tries if I could. Mm-hmm. Um, you remind me a lot. I don't know if you know him, Dean Graciosi. He has similar, I do know Dean. similar advice and living with gratitude. He says it's one of the biggest things that has affected his life. And I started doing a daily gratitude journal that just pops up on my phone. And in the beginning, it was sort of just uh, the same stuff over and over. And then you start to think like, I have a nice house that I don't have to worry about the payment and I have family that I can rely on if I need something. And I'm where I'm at now compared to where I was like, we're fine. Like we are great. It is great right now. Like, yes, it will be better someday, but it's so, it's so there's something about the, the human brain. You have to train it to constantly look at where you act. What's the reality of right now? Reality right now is things are amazing. And from a spiritual perspective, you know, the uh, Buddhism teaches that there's suffering in attachment. So if I'm attached to the things and I fear the loss of those things, uh, even if I fear the loss of relationships or I fear the loss of family or I fear the loss of, of life, if, if, I, if I am in serious fear of those things and I am attached to the outcome of that loss, and so it's the uh, that attachment that creates that angst and that suffering and that that uh, discontent. And so, um, uh, I mean, listen, I've I'm not anything special. I've had plenty of hurt in my life, okay. But it's all been a lesson. Remember, I told you everything led me up to now. So all all yeah, of that, yeah. you know, all of that counts. <laughs> so from a spiritual perspective, we were placed here. And it, you know, I don't, I don't know how you believe spiritually, but I believe that I was placed here to um, squeeze everything out of this existence. And then, what happens to me next? Uh, maybe I'll get another try, a different try. Well, from my limited time I've known you, I definitely think you are squeezing a lot out of this uh, this life that you've created for yourself. So let's wrap it up on that. I can't think of a better ending than that. Paul, if people want to get in contact with you, we'll put everything in the show notes. Paul has a bunch of content out there as well on YouTube that I stumbled upon that we want to put in show notes as well. Um, is there any other, anything else you want to throw out there, Paul? Email addresses, websites. What's your current 
current company website? It'd be paulmontalongo.com. And okay. uh, every uh, social media outlet is at Paul Montalongo. Um, I, am, I make myself available to mentor and to teach and to, to guide and offer advice. Um, and uh, I, I, just, I just feel like it's the right thing to do. Uh, I've had people guide me, and so I just feel like it's the right thing. So anybody out there have any special <laughs> circumstances that could use a little in, a word of encouragement? I, have, I still have friends. I have friends that I call up and I go, hey, I need a word of encouragement. <laughs> Can you? You know, I need, to, I need to run something by you. So, uh, yeah, I, I make myself available for that. But anything at Paul Montalongo, and, and I am pretty darn good about eventually responding. That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, thank you, Paul, for coming on and giving us an hour of your time. It was a very insightful little deep dive into your world and your thought process. So I appreciate all your it. time. Appreciate the yeah, no offer. Problem.